Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Tuesday, November 1st, and it has been another huge week for mergers. I, I think uh, I was just reading an article that said this October was the biggest month for U.S. mergers of all time. Just in the past week, there was the $6.1 billion public LBO of Team Health by Blackstone, the $34 billion acquisition of Level 3 by CenturyLink. Uh, there were several others. There was the Qualcomm uh, NXPI deal that I said last week hadn't been announced. And, and you correct me and said it wasn't quite announced yet. Well, that's a $50 billion deal that uh, has been announced. You, you were uh, just looking so far into the future, <laughs> you didn't even realize the clock hadn't gotten there yet. Uh, so, yeah, so, so there were tons of deals announced. Uh, but our focus today is going to be on two mega mergers. We're going to have a little bit of follow-up on the AT&T Time Warner deal, and then we'll turn over to the GE Baker Hughes merger partnership deal. Uh, so Chris, Apple, Time Warner, and AT&T. We spoke about Time Warner and uh, AT&T last week, but two interesting things have kind of come out since then. Uh, first, the New York Post came out with an article that said Goldman Sachs is, and this is in quotes, freaking out, end quotes, trying to get Apple to bid on Time Warner. And then the second thing is a ton of industry people have come out and said, look, AT&T buying Time Warner, AT&T are among the worst buyers, the worst timers out there. Them buying Time Warner marks the top of the content bubble, uh, So, which some people are calling kind of peak TV. So Chris, I'll turn it over to you. Peak TV and Goldman trying to get Apple to bid on Time Warner. What do you want to talk about? I think AT&T is just the company that would be uh, lobbying in the uh, top tick, probably both to peak TV and the peak of this M&A cycle, it, one at the same time. It's kind of funny because Time Warner and their old form when they had Time Warner Cable, Time Warner and everything, they marked the peak of the internet bubble when they did that giant merger with AOL. And now kind of the peak of the content merger might be Time Warner itself getting bought out. I love the press on uh, Goldman. Um, at least the folks that I know there, they're not really the freaking out type. So I thought that was kind of funny that that was the phrase they used for uh, Goldman's reaction. Uh, although I think they might not necessarily be freaking out on behalf of Time Warner. Time Warner got the price that they wanted uh, with a, a fine deal, although one that the spread so big, it does leave some opportunity for somebody with higher certainty and a faster deal process to lob in a similar nominal price, but that could get shareholders interested. But I think Goldman's really freaking out because of the league tables. They're, they weren't any part of this massive deal. They're at $479 billion in U.S. Uh, deal advisory. J.P. Morgan is at $463 billion. That's much tighter than this time of year Goldman uh, partners want to be ahead at number two. And so I think they just need to come into this $85 billion deal somehow. So I think they're freaking out about uh, being totally cut out of it. You know, to me, it's funny because it, it, I used this analogy earlier. It's like asking your barber if you need a haircut. You yeah. know, of course they're going to say yes. It's completely ridiculous. You know, Apple's got two choices. They can do nothing or they can lob in a topping bid for Time Warner. If they do nothing, then Goldman gets nothing. If they do something, then not only does Goldman get a bump on the league tables, but you know, it's a $100 billion merger. You'll probably Probably, you're probably talking about four to five hundred million dollar in merger advisory fees. Like, if you gave me a choice, nothing or five hundred million dollars, I know what I'd be leaning towards. Uh, so, so I, I think it's completely ridiculous that to have Goldman freaking out. Go ahead. Uh, you know, also I would say that these are huge companies and huge banks, and uh, is 
Apple considering a bid for Time Warner? In a very literal sense, the answer is almost certainly yes, in the sense that if you talk to people who do planning at the Pentagon, they literally have a plan for invading Tahiti. They don't expect to. They just have millions of people in our military so they can have contingency plans for almost anything. Well, well I think in this case, there there is a lot of evidence that Apple is definitely considering, yeah. and, and they're past the point of, oh, like they are seriously considering it. There have been a lot of reports over the past year that Apple's made approaches to Time Warner mm-hmm. about potentially buying. Some people thought Time Warner might have struck the deal with uh, AT&T just to get, force Apple to hit a yes or no. And on their last earnings call, Tim Cook basically acknowledged that they were go- they're serious looking at it he said they look at all strategic acquisitions and then he said look we look at all strategic acquisitions and tv and creating and owning contest is and this is again a, a direct quote an intense interest of apples so yeah. clearly considering Th- that it. quote sounds that quote sounds uh, very uh, specific doesn't it yeah so i'm just gonna lob one in you know so apple's clearly considering time warner i think the question is should they bid on Time Warner? I I have my personal answer, which I'm happy to dive into, or I'll let you dive into it if you want Let's to. Let's hear yours. Okay, so my personal answer, I would say the answer is no. A, mm-hmm. it's a huge deal. You know, it's a huge deal at a big premium, and I think the history of beating a big premium with a bigger premium is poor. And then when I think, why would Apple want to buy Time Warner? The answer is they want to get into content and distribution. And if I said that, I would say, hey, why are you going to go buy Time Warner for $100 billion and get kind of TBS, CNN, TNT, all these things that you don't want when you could go look at Netflix for 65 or 70 billion. Now, Time Warner does throw off a lot more cash, but Netflix has uh, tons of data. They're way, way ahead of HBO in terms of getting data on all their customers and how their customers are watching things. They've got this huge content creation machine, and you can get it cheaper with uh, kind of a better pipeline and more users on the streaming side. I think that would make much more sense for what Apple's looking to do. I, I think that you're right. I think that Apple shouldn't. The flip side, I would say that my favorite deal guy amongst all these management teams is the Time Warner CEO. And he really proved that sometimes management's right and shareholders, at least who wanted to do a deal, were wrong when he turned down the News Corp interest. And, uh, you know, he got the price he wanted here. Uh, He got a very low breakup fee in percentage terms. It sounds big in dollar terms just because it's a big deal. But um, it's one that really could entice interest. Although we'll kind of know in the next few weeks, I think. Once they get much further down the process, we'll know that nobody else is wrong. So, so just some quick background there. Uh, in I think it was 2014, Fox, who we also talked about last week, offered uh, Time Warner. It was like $84 per share, and a lot of shareholders wanted it, and Time Warner managed to kind of fend them off. And if you think 2014 to today, you're selling for over $100 per share, and cable industry multiples have come way down in the meantime, and you were going to get a lot of Fox stock then. I mean, that's just a home run for him to be able to turn that down. Let's quickly turn over to the concept of uh, peak TV mm-hmm. and a bubble in content. I'll, I'll give some stats, and then you can jump in. You know, I, people are saying, look, uh, there is just so much TV out there. If, uh, there are going to be 500 series aired in 2017, and for context, in 2010, only 216 were aired. So there's tons of content, all of this great TV out there. It's almost impossible to keep up with everything's going on. And cable company and companies are spending massively on this. Uh, the six big entertainment companies: Disney, Netflix, HBO, Turner, Fox, Amazon are going to spend 27 billion dollars on content this year. Netflix alone is going to spend six billion dollars on it. So the the question question is, are investors and companies kind of overestimating the value of creating all this content? And I'll turn it to you first. You know, I, I think that they could be uh, whenever there are these just mm-hmm. massive kind of, I, 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 it's sort of begging the question to call it a bubble, but let me, let me just say that 
uh, whenever there are these kind of massive uh, gluts, maybe in um, in capex on this kind of thing, uh, it doesn't necessarily go to the shareholder. It probably goes to the content consumer. You, I mean, it's probably good. Just what you should do about this is you should watch TV and enjoy it, and not necessarily own the equities. You, you have exactly. It's exactly the thing I, I'm thinking. It goes to a the consumers or b the the talent, right? Because when you've got all this glut of uh, when you've got this glut of things you can watch. How do you kind of differentiate yourself? And the way you do that is you have a star. And we've talked about this a couple times. You know, if you have a great movie, people might not see it. But if you have a great movie with Will Smith, people go see it. And Will Smith's the one who gets most of the uh, value out of that. And it's impossible to hide from him his worth. I mean, he yeah. has the information, just the data's right there. Exactly. In charge of market price. Uh, you know, I do think it is interesting. If you look historically, the value in content has not come from creating content. It's come from the distribution of content. And if you do think about the companies we've been talking about, Netflix, HBO, they really have met, they have not only the content, but they've got the distribution. So they seem well positioned, whereas something like Disney, which has great content, but might not have distribution yet, uh, they might not be perfectly positioned for the future. Even John Malone has said, look, uh, the future, it, the value's always in, always been in distribution. The future is in making sure you've got great distribution. So it will be interesting to think about. Uh, real quickly, Chris, I, I what do you have anything on TV you're watching? Any favorite TV shows or anything? Let's see. I'm kind of. I'm actually not. I'm, I'm still in the market. So you can um, still uh, email uh, us to the podcast uh, email link if you have any good suggestions. Did anyone hit you with anything you like last time? Or you know, I got a few, um, but I've just been I've just been thinking about other things recently. Yeah, so I have a little bit of a backlog of ideas, but I've not been. How about yourself? You so mean? I try not to watch too much TV. Yeah. I have four shows I watch. Westworld, which is on HBO, uh, which is by the creators of Lost, which is something mm-hmm. I loved. Uh, last week tonight, John Oliver, I think he does great work. Uh, I, and then one other one, South Park, which I know mm-hmm. sounds childish and humorous. But if you look, the history of South Park, talking about kind of fads and calling them ridiculous. Uh, if you had shorted the day, the South Park episode called something a fad. Like they've really? just got such great insight into uh, kind of the American consumer and cultural behavior. I, I, I think it's tremendous. Witty, funny. Uh, I love it. S- s- satire and especially kind of bracing, kind of witty satire can actually be a great uh, venue for debunking because they can call BS on something mm-hmm. early uh, under the guise of humor, but actually say what they mean. And, and it's not just that. It's also that the, these are guys, they're, they're so original and creative. Like people who are really funny are all, often also super original and creative and they see things through a different angle, which if you're going to outperform in markets, you really need to be seeing things from a different angle. And just because they have South Park, they delivered in a funny form, but mm-hmm. it's often a unique unique and insightful intake i i i have not ever seen the show but somebody did send me uh one of our colleagues sent me a link of um was it captain hindsight uh yeah yep, yep. one of my favorite uh characters uh that you get sometimes <laughs> from brokers and so forth uh kind of telling you about things that happened in the past all right we are way out of sure. left field so let's go over to the ge baker hughes uh merger and this was actually originally we tried to do like the most popular article of the day but Nine of the ten most popular articles of the day on the Wall Street Journal were related to Hillary Clinton's emails, and I have no desire to talk about that. So this was the tenth article. Uh, But we've talked about Baker Hughes quite a bit on this podcast at the beginning of the year as their merger agreement with Halliburton uh, collapsed on antitrust grounds. The last time we mentioned them was our May 2nd podcast. On Monday, the company actually announced a deal to merge in a partnership with GE's oil business, and it's a very strangely structured deal where GE will merge their their unit with uh, Baker Hughes, and GE itself will retain about 62.5% ownership of the company, and Baker Hughes shareholders will maintain a 37.5% 
publicly traded minority interest in the company. So very strangely structured deal. Chris, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think of the deal? Are let regulators going to let it go through? All that sort of stuff. Well, uh, first of all, Baker Hughes management's kind of on a roll. I mean, they were always predicting that there would be problems with the Halliburton deal. Mm -hmm. Halliburton had to both offer a big price and a big break fee to do something that Baker Hughes thought was a low probability. It was a low probability. Uh, They got the deal price, then they got the break fee. Halliburton was seen by the regulators as being fairly belligerent in their antitrust stance um, that uh, failed. Uh, And then uh, Baker Hughes was available for a new deal. I do think regulators will approve uh, this deal with GE. There might need to be some divestitures. There's some minor overlaps in electric submersible pumps, a few other areas that either in the U.S. or Mm -hmm. in the EU uh, might need to be fixed, but they are all immaterial fixes. You know, and it's funny because when uh, when Halliburton and Baker Hughes were combining, a lot of of people thought GE was the person who had to buy their divestiture package. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought they were the only people regulators were to accept as buyers, and GE kind of balked there. And it's funny, by balking there, they have gotten all of Baker Hughes in response. So it's worked out very well for them you know yep. i think the deal makes sense on all sides mm-hmm. it is a strange structure but for baker hughes they get a really nice price this mm-hmm. is about 11 times 2018 ebitda which is a, a great price for ge there it makes them one of the top three players in oil services which has been a goal of theirs tons of cost cutting potential they're estimating 1.2 billion dollars in synergy 400 million dollars in revenue synergies uh, 800 million to a billion dollars in tax benefits as well as ge being able to leverage some of their other technologies in this business so seems to make sense everywhere i think you hit on the antitrust grounds uh you know what do you what do you make of the the strange structure that we discussed here i I think it's a great idea actually i I always look at a company and think what is the optimal cap structure for it and then secondly what is the best strategic combination and if you can isolate and contractually optimize for both of those it doesn't necessarily need to be oh we need to borrow this much or spend this much to control the whole thing in this case they're kind of using the uh, balance sheet of public uh, minority uh, outside minority passive investors and I think from both perspectives and we didn't really kind of reveal whether we supported the deal or not before talking now, but I, I really support it hugely uh, on on the GE side. You know, it really fits completely in their plan to reindustrialize, the, to become a leader in oil and gas. They've gotten out of Fairfield County, they've gotten out of finance, and they've gotten out of their systematically uh, important designation. And this is really what they're doing uh, at this point with their balance sheet. And 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 on the Baker Hughes side, you know, it's really um, it's it's a good opportunity. There's some market skepticism. You know, about a quarter of the synergies are described as, you know, kind of non-cost synergies. It's trading about a 20, a little over 20% discount to where it would be if the deal got done. Uh, And I think that that's kind of in part taking into account synergy skepticism but uh but i think on both sides it's it's really makes a, a lot of a lot of sense oh and then one last little thing i'll just go in there with is that during the course of their deal they were uh lacking the flexibility to deeply cut costs the way during that they the course were, of their halliburton deal, the yeah. halliburton deal that they didn't have the flexibility to have massive headcount reduction uh even costs that would normally be variable were less variable under the auspices of the deal. And so they started cutting costs when that deal was abandoned, but now GE can come in and really aggressively cut costs. Yeah, you know, my only thing here is, I, it's just such a strange structure for GE, because look, they said they want to get into oil services, mm-hmm. and if they wanted to own 100% of this, they could go 
ahead. They could easily buy the other 37.5%. G is huge. They've got the balance sheet. They could do it. But they structured it so they control 62.5%. But on their uh, on their merger call, they, they came out and their CFO even said, look, we've structured this in such a way that in the future, if we want to split or spin off this business, there will be no tax issues with giving it out to shareholders. So clearly they're thinking about the next step. So why take this intermediate step? Why not just buy 100% immediately or distribute out 100% of shares to shareholders immediately? You know, I, I can't really think of a great reason why you would kind of leave yourself hanging in limbo for the balance. Free, uh, free uh, control leverage on your control. I mean, so it's kind of, you know, uh, they, they get to direct the business uh, for lower costs. Um, and uh, also a little bit of visibility in terms of what it's worth trying to get some credit from the market for that part of their business. Yeah, but, you know, it, it, I get all that. But again, all of that seem it, it just seems strange to leave yourself in a limbo like this. Like if you're going to if you're going to get the control, go buy all of it. If you don't want to buy all of it, either A, why are you buying it? Or B, why aren't you spinning out the whole thing to everyone? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The market might ignore it too. They might be able to take the whole the in later. Yeah, and, and they, may, that and is they might get it at a bit of a discount. You know, um, it's uh, probably always going to trade at a discount to its intrinsic yeah, value, just I because so. people will say, "Oh, majority control, lower float." There's no room for activism or anything here. So, G might be able to a year from now. You know, I think Baker Hughes is trading at 55 right now. A year from now, they might be able to buy the whole thing at a little bit of a discount because. The- Everyone's not looking. I see this thing happen on the credit side more than the equity side, where somebody's own decisions gives the market uh, such pause that you then can buy it in at a much lower price than you would otherwise. And in this case, you know, the equities, and we have another situation, not time to go into now, similar where the market might just kind of forget about ignore for a few years and get it back on the cheap later. Perfect. Perfect. So let's see. That's all the time we have for today. Just before we hit our disclosures, a quick reminder. Uh, if you like this podcast, please please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. Disclosures, Chris, I don't have anything. What, what, what about you? Yeah, I do. I have a bit of Time Warner and a bit of Baker Hughes. Okay, perfect. So Chris has Time Warner and Baker Hughes. Those are disclosures, and we will talk to you guys later this week.